Simon Winchester points out that just like tectonic plates beneath the sea, encounters between the nations of the Pacific Rim are redefining our future. Most of all, it's the place where the two great civilizations on the planet finally are meeting one another. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we explore stories of coral reefs and atom bombs, surfboards and sailors, and the potential clash between the world's superpowers. Martin Fletcher has retired as a foreign correspondent on TV. Now he's writing novels that explore the stories of survivors from World War II and the Balkan conflicts. Because of my background as a Jew in England and the Holocaust, I have a personal, very deep, visceral hostility towards bullies. And walk around Delft for a taste of old Holland. You might recognize the old church from etchings on their famous Delftware pottery. The church is really designed to make your head look up to the sky and the heavens. (laughs) It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. One great way to connect with the locals is to speak the language, or at least some of it. Rosetta Stone is a fast, fun way to learn. It's got helpful tools like online video chats with native-speaking teachers. You can take the Rosetta Stone demo or purchase the program at a special discount at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. After writing a biography of the Atlantic Ocean a few years ago, Simon Winchester has now put together an eye-opening collection of tales and observations about what he calls an oceanic behemoth of eye-watering complexity. He joins us in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves with highlights from his new book, Pacific. Plus, retired war correspondent Martin Fletcher shares stories of survivors, stories that hit pretty close to home for him and his family. After years in busy Rotterdam and Amsterdam, Angelique Mergler decided to move back to the old world atmosphere of her hometown of Delft in South Holland. Even today, a walk around the old town can make you feel you're part of a Vermeer painting. Angelique joins us now for the walkable pleasures of historic Delft. We're at 877-333-RICK. Angelique, thanks for being here. Thank you. So you're a young, modern Dutch person living in a fairy tale town. It's almost like living in a painting. Within half an hour, you've got uh, Rotterdam and Amsterdam's just an hour away. Why do you live in a cute little town instead of the big, crazy city of Rotterdam or Amsterdam? Actually, I lived in Rotterdam for 17 years. And I worked in Amsterdam, and I lived there for a while as well. But, yeah, I missed Delft in the end, so we moved back because it's so beautiful. And it's really like a Vermeer painting, as you say, because the light is so beautiful, and it's easy to understand how he got to paint his paintings because it is like a Vermeer painting. There really is something about the light in a Vermeer painting, and you find that in Delft. It is. Can you describe that? What what is it? Is it a, a clearness, a crystalness, a peacefulness? It's all of it, and I think it's because of uh, Delft is built in the middle of a swamp in a moor, and it's really damp. That does something to the light. So now you live in Delft, and, and again, if, if you've not been in Delft, just uh, so our, our listeners can understand, if, if you can think of the most beautiful painting of a Dutch town, it could be one of the little lanes in Delft. Yeah. Now, when you live in Delft, what's it like early in the morning to walk around the town, or what's your favorite time in Delft? Oh, it's good that you asked that, because... Actually, every hour is different, and sometimes in the mornings I take the kids to school and it's beautiful, and then in the afternoons it's beautiful, and in night it's beautiful. So every hour the light changes, and sometimes the light comes up to the church, and then there's a cloud coming up because we're close to the coast and there's lots of clouds. So the lights change every minute, every hour. So In Holland you have a big sky. Yes, yes. Because there's no hills. Yeah, that's true, yeah. If you look at the Dutch paintings, a lot of them are about the sky, the clouds and the yeah. weather blowing through. 
Yeah. And then you have rocketing right up in the middle of this flat landscape, a tower of bricks, the spire of the church in Delft. Yeah, it's a miracle. <laughs> it is a miracle. I was just there a couple of months ago, and the sun was setting. It was just the last little bit of light on the spire. And I stood there, and my head went up like, yeah. like a Pez dispenser. And yeah. I saw this tower of bricks. Of course, bricks would be the, the normal building material in the Netherlands because there's a lot of uh, soil to make the bricks with and not so many trees, I guess. Yeah, the clay. Yeah. The clay, yeah. 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 And then when I was there, they were setting up for the market. And the next oh, really? morning was the market. Talk about as you go to the market in the morning on Saturday in Delft. Oh, yeah, it's really buzzing with people, and it's people buying cheese and vegetables and flowers, and it's small, but it's it's busy, it's nice. And you go to the little cheese shop in the market, the, yeah. the cheese tent, and the man is evangelical about his cheese. Yeah. <laughs> he wants you to try every kind. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Young cheese, old cheese. Yes, and you can try everything. And So now, when you're doing your work, you're taking Americans, tourists, around Delft. Yes. What What do you enjoy most to show them? Well, the churches, as you just told, the church is really designed to make your head look up to the sky and the heavens. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, it was possible to build it there because it's sandy and the rest is really wet, so that, that's the only spot where it could have been built. Now, that is interesting because I learned when I was in Delft that, of course, uh, it's swampy land and, and the Dutch were reclaiming land and much of the land was below sea level, actually. It is, and yeah. the one piece of solid land would be, well, for the church to support the big spire yeah. and for the city hall where you'd have the jail, which had to be made out of stones. Yes. So it was a heavier building, and yes. they needed stronger land to build that on. Yes, it's true. And then yeah. between the church and the city hall, you've got the market square. Yeah. Now, when we think of Delft, a lot of Americans are thinking about Delftware, the royal Delftware. Tell us about the tradition of Delftware, uh, the porcelain. Yes, in, yes. In your city. Delft is actually famous for its beer back in the Middle Ages. Uh-huh. That gave the city a lot of wealth, a lot of rich people, big houses. But in the end, the water was so dirty that it wasn't possible anymore to make uh, beer out of it. So in the meantime, they had thought of the East Indy companies and um, they went to China and they went to the East and they saw all the porcelain there. And then they thought, oh, we can do that. We can do that faster, cheaper, better. So that's why they made up the Delft Blue. <laughs> Dutch ingenuity centuries ago. It is, it is. It is interesting that you had so much money because, what did you have, like 200 breweries in the town, a thriving textile market, and that was the golden age in the 1600s. Mm-hmm. And then something happened and the economy collapsed. Mm-hmm. But that sort of left Delft like a sleeping beauty town, didn't it? Just cocooned yeah. away. In the 18th century, the whole of the economy and the whole of the Netherlands actually collapsed because after the golden century, it was so hard to equalize that, and it was, was impossible, and people were so rich, it just stayed the way it was. So in a way, the uh, fact that the economy collapsed a couple hundred years ago makes for a more beautiful town today for tourism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And now you have a beautiful place to call home. Absolutely. <laughs> this is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Angelique Merkler, and we're talking about her hometown, Delft, in the Netherlands. Our phone number is 877 and Martha's calling in from the Isle of Palms in South Carolina. Hi, Martha. Do you have a comment or a, a memory about Delft that you can share with Angelique and our listeners? Yes. I was visiting a friend who lives in The Hague, had just moved there. She's a German girl, and her husband's in the German military. One day she said, I've never been to Delft. Let's go there. She's an artist and wanted to go to the factory. And we got there late in the afternoon. It was like the tours ended maybe at four, four fifteen and we got there about that time. But the lady at the front desk said you can go back and just there 
uh, guardrails. You can't go through those, but you can walk back and just see the mold. We got back there, and a very nice guy that was working there smiled at us and said, do you have any questions? He, I said, I don't know anything about anything. He <laughs> showed us the molds, how they fired them. We met a couple of the artists and found out that on the bottom of the Dell products, you see little letters. Those are the painter's initials. Huh. It was just wonderful. You know, it's just a time-honored uh, art form, and to be able to have an intimate look at, at how they still make it in the traditional way is, is quite uh, impressive, isn't it? It was just terrific, and everybody there, the lady in the gift shop was nice and said, let me show you some of these things, and there were people in that had ordered. We're not just buying in the gift shop, and it was interesting to see the things that they were buying and why they bought them. Just great art. Oh yeah, and, and then uh, that they let you wander around in the and watch them every every stage of the production you get to visit uh, and see. And why the ones that molds that don't work, and which ones do, and the color that they come out after they're fired, the whole thing. Everybody was just as nice as they could be. You know, and just it was not like a factory. It was almost as if we were in an artist's home. And, and, got to see. and they've been doing it just like that since the 1600s. It's really quite Correct. amazing. Thanks so much yes. for your call, Martha. Bye now. Angelique, by the way, our last caller talked about The Hague. It's just uh, half an hour away from Delft, I believe. Ten minutes. Ten minutes, yeah. Ten minutes, So this is interesting. You've got this beautiful, charming gazellig. That's Mm -hmm. the Dutch word for for cozy, isn't it? Gazellig, yeah. Gazellig, it's (laughs) an important word to know. But from that gazellig home base, within ten minutes, you can be at The Hague, the home of the World Peace Palace. Yes. Uh, Within uh, half an hour or something, Rotterdam. with Ten minutes also? Ten minutes also. (laughs) It's really close. Amazing. And also, of course, you can zip up to Amsterdam. Yes. So it's it's a beautiful home base, and you can also go directly to the airport. Yes, yes. Very handy. Yeah, the train connects all these cities, and Actually, Delft was built in the middle of the two cities, Den Haag and Rotterdam. Yeah, with 10 minutes, you're, you're in both cities, so and it's really the, nice. And then the sea resort next to Den Haag is Scheveningen. Yeah, Scheveningen, yeah. I got the pronunciation done, <laughs> yeah. Scheveningen. And uh, that's just a delightful place to go for a little yes. time on the beach. So you get the cute town for the home base with wonderful hotels and restaurants and easy side trips to the great cities in that part of the country. It's a beautiful uh, destination for people when they're traveling in the Netherlands. Joan's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Joan, thanks for your call. Thank you. We fell so much in love with Delft that we want to go back immediately. So we were in Delft in December and just happened to be there on um, December 5th. And when we got there, we had been in Israel, so we were not prepared for the cold, even though we knew ahead of time. We just didn't want to pack that much. So we found out that the the market that you were talking about was happening that afternoon, and it was delightful. We bought hats and gloves and scarves. One of our favorite things to do was just to wander around, and because it was that evening, a lot of the businesses were closed. There were restaurants open, but it was just so beautiful, the the misty rain that was happening and and the cold, and there were a few people out. It just felt like a wonderland of, of beauty. We wandered around the Oudkirk, or, or however you say it, the, the old, old church. old church. To have it be dark and kind of foggy, misty, and then mm. the, the soft lighting that's everywhere just cast mm. these beautiful shadows and and soft, glowing light and made the bricks, the mm. old bricks, just 
just beautiful. And you then know, we went back the next day and went through it, and that was really fascinating. Joan, one thing you might have missed having been there in December was the barges that are tied to the canal outside of the restaurants. And the barges used to be industrial uh, vehicles, and now they just tie them up, and they've got you know flower boxes in them, and they've got little cute gazelleg uh, tables, and they're serving the food in the barge canal. And uh, it's delightful in the summer, but I'd like to go there in the winter and experience that sort of dramatic peacefulness that you did. Yes, that was exactly what was, dramatic and peaceful and very homey, just wonderful. Yeah. In fact, when we go back, we'll go back in warmer weather. But the woman at the desk that afternoon said, oh, you must eat chocolate. That's what we do all day today because it was December 5th. And So December 5th, that's uh, St. Nicholas Day or what is yes. that? Uh-huh. Okay, so yes. that, that really is part of the Christmas celebrations and they're eating a lot it, of chocolate. Uh-huh. Was a home and family night. I think that's why so many businesses were closed. It was nice and bustly that day, but beautiful time to be there. Hey, Joan, thanks so much for your call. You have some beautiful memories to share. Thank you. So, Angelique, Joan, who just called from Portland, uh, mentioned uh, a lot of chocolate on St. Nicholas Day. I suppose any time of year you could enjoy some good chocolate in Delft. What's your recommendation for a nice chocolate shop in Delft? Well, it's one of the bigger canals uh, at the back of the old church. The Oude Jan, the old John, there's a really nice tiny chocolate shop. And they say they got the best chocolate in the Netherlands, so maybe that's a good place. They also got ice creams in summer, chocolate ice cream. Nice. So. so the little chocolate shop behind the church. Yes. Angelique, thank you for a good look at a beautiful town, Delft. Okay, thank you. Martin Fletcher remembers survivors from the Holocaust and the wars in former Yugoslavia in just a bit. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, Simon Winchester turns his travels across the Pacific into an amazing book, one that's filled with history and omens and characters as varied as Gidget and El Nino. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, giving you feedback on your pronunciation as you learn a new language to help your language be clear and authentic-sounding to the native ear. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. When best-selling author Simon Winchester tackles the history of the world's largest ocean, he ends up with what's being called an enthralling biography of the Pacific. His travels from the Bering Strait to Cape Horn have provided him with insight into how the Pacific region shapes our world and promises to define our future. Simon Winchester, thanks for being here. Well, thank you, too. You know, Simon, when I look at the Pacific, it is huge on the map. And, And when I look at it, I see basically the biggest stretch of nothing on the globe. What do you see when you look at the Pacific? Well, 10,600 miles from where you are to the nearest chunk of land on the other side, it's a very long expanse, but uh, it's not nothing. <laughs> this yeah, is right. ridiculous. No, there's an awful lot going on. I mean, it's uh, both symbolically and in reality. I mean, there's a lot. You've got the ring of fire surrounding it, so heaps of volcanoes and tectonic activity. Billions of people lots and lots, thousands upon thousands of islands on which lots of distinct cultures live and have lived for thousands of years. And beneath the ocean, extraordinary things going on, extraordinary things being discovered. And I suppose symbolically most of all, it's the place where the two great civilizations on the planet finally are meeting one another. Because if we look back and you know, accept that humankind began in what is now Ethiopia, and they went north, and then one group went east to Mesopotamia and the Indus Valley and to Peking. And one group went left through Europe, and then those in Europe went across the Atlantic to the Americas and then crossed the Americas to the Pacific coast. And then they sat sort of glaring at each other for 
many thousands of years, thinking, do we dare cross this ocean and meet? And now they have met, with the Easterners, as it were, being on the western side of the ocean and the westerners being on the east side of the ocean, a piece of geographical topsy-turvydom. But now they've met, and um, the question is whether the confrontation is going to be a peaceful one or whether it's going to be a hostile one, and that's why the Pacific, I think, is so important for the for the planet's future. So we are at a, a point when east is meeting west, and just like when tectonic plates meet, there can be uh, disruption, and uh, it'll be interesting to pay attention to that. I want to get into that in a minute, but first of all, just from a sailor's point of view, exploring the Pacific, what are some of your favorite sailor experiences that, that are unique to the Pacific? Well, one of the things is the enormous storms you get. I mean, you have, it's called the Pacific, it's really a misnomer. I mean, Magellan, when he sailed into it in 1529, happened upon it in the southeastern quadrant on a particularly nice day. And so the Pacific was the sort of cliched Pacific of um, Rogers and Hammerstein and National Geographic magazine covers of coral islands with white sand beaches Mm -hmm. and palm trees leaning into the trade winds. But in fact, you get, and I've experienced, a number of extraordinary number of ferocious storms. The storms are really in the northern hemisphere known as typhoons, which is the Chinese word for big wind, of course, or cyclones if they're in the the southern hemisphere. And those storms can be unutterably huge. And indeed, the, the admirals who run the American Navy from Hawaii say that they're the biggest potential threat to the tranquility of the world. Not any collision with China, not troubles with North Korea, but the storms that are with increasing frequency being generated because of global warming and all the things we know about rising sea levels and so forth. So I'd say the most memorable thing when I've ever crossed the Pacific is being caught in a tremendous storm when the ocean is not Pacific at all. What are the roaring 40s? You hear about that term. Yes, it's a mariner's term, really, that in the south latitudes, the the winds south of 40 degrees south are very, very powerful westerlies. And, of course, the place where most notorious are uh, south of Cape Horn and the uh, ships trying to battle going to the west against these very, very strong gale force winds often in the olden days used to founder. And there's an island called Staten Island, which is um, not like Staten Island in New York, but where there are thousands of wrecked sailing ships. So the roaring 40s are a menace to mariners, or they used to be, not so bad today. So it's referring to the latitude lines. Indeed, yeah. Right. You get the furious 50s. (laughs) The roaring 40s. (laughs) Now, you write about the ABNJ, Areas Beyond National Jurisdiction. This is fascinating. There are actually zones on this planet that nobody really uh, owns. What is that? Well, and it's true. I mean, they're beyond, you know, we all know about 12-mile limits and 200-mile limits, but the Pacific is so big that huge entities of it are simply not policed or don't belong to anyone. They are what used to be called the high seas. And the question is that for the good of us all, um, the seas generally must be policed and regulated because otherwise people will pollute them or overfish them or in some way damage them. And so there is this question now of of who actually runs the ABNJs. And America is not particularly cooperative in this regard because it hasn't ratified the United Nations Conventions on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS as it's called. And so for the time being anyway, the ABNJs go unpoliced because America is not very cooperative about policing Mm. them. Having said which, two recent American presidents, the current one and his predecessor, George W. Bush, 
have declared very large areas of American-influenced Pacific marine reserves. And so there is a hope that the Americans are now slowly stepping up to the plate, at least in the parts of the world that they have a, a, some degree of control over. So yeah. They, yeah. these areas are protected from overfishing and so forth. Yeah, you talk about the tiny, unpeopled mid-ocean islands. If somebody dropped you on one of these little islands, what would be there? <laughs> well, um, it's a very interesting question to an Englishman because we have a famous uh, program called Desert Island Discs on the <laughs> BBC. What, what eight pieces of music would you take with you if you were marooned for the rest of your life on right. one of the islands you're talking <laughs> yeah. about? But what would you find there? Well, very little. I mean, you'd find sand crabs, and I dare say you'd find palm trees, but what you probably wouldn't find was water, and you'd have to come up with a canny way of you know, distilling water from seawater. <laughs> so you'd have, you'd have a, a problem. If, if they're unpeopled, they're unpeopled for a reason, and that's that they're, they're not agreeable to human life or existence. But right. there'd be coconuts, one would hope. Coconuts, okay. But there actually are little tiny islands that nobody owns, that nobody lives on in the middle of nowhere, kind of. Well, I'm not sure that they're not owned, but they're not lived on. I mean, there right. are a lot of, a lot of islands in the Pacific. Yeah. There's a still an enormous amount of mystery. It is so big that there are still things waiting to be discovered, right. particularly, of course, under the surface of the sea. We're talking with best-selling author Simon Winchester, and he's followed up his epic biography of the Atlantic Ocean with his latest book called Pacific. And the subtitle is about as big as the ocean. The subtitle for this book, Silicon Chips and Surfboards, Coral Reefs and Atom Bombs, Brutal Dictators, Fading Empires, and the Coming Collision of the World's Superpowers. Wow. Now, Simon, let's just dissect your subtitle a little bit. Uh, what's with uh, Silicon Chips and Surfboards? Silicon Chips and Surfboards? Well, I mean, it's very obvious from, you know, where you are up in Seattle down to Cupertino and beyond. is an enormous amount of Pacific side work being done involving silicon and um, microcomputers and so forth and surfboards well that's uh, there's an entire chapter in the book devoted to the history of surfing which was known as wave riding on boards in the middle of the ocean on the big waves um, was something invented in Tahiti some thousands of years ago and then it spread up to Hawaii in the 19th century and became pinioned in Hawaii but then the missionaries saw it when they arrived and they saw that the Hawaiians surfed naked. And of course, this hugely offended the Christian missionaries who said, you've got to stop this kind of savage behavior and made either do it wearing a muumuu or um, don't do it at all. And so they opted not to do it at all. And it was dying out except among the children. And it happened that in 1907, uh, Jack London was passing through Hawaii and he was swimming with his wife in what was then the village of Waikiki. And suddenly hundreds of these adorable little boys all riding on little surfboards zipped over the waves past him and he thought my gosh what a nifty thing I want to learn how to do it did learn how to do it and wrote a piece in the women's home companion of October 1907 surfing uh, the king of sports I think that was the title and suddenly this made surfing people started doing it in Redondo Beach and in Malibu and in Bondi Beach in Australia because the article was syndicated and then in 1959 the film came out, um, no one had much confidence in its success, but the New York Times loved it, and so it became a success. And that was the movie Gidget. And Gidget transformed this little, the Pacific's gift to playtime, if you like, into a worldwide sport, and it's now a $13 billion a year industry. And indeed, Gidget herself, who's called Kathy Kona, and uh, now called Kathy Zimmerman, and is in her 70s, um, wrote to me the other day and um, 
She still lives and still surfs and lives in Malibu, and we're going to have dinner next week. So I'm thrilled. I'm totally thrilled. <laughs> dinner with Gidget. What could be better? Dinner with Gidget. Now, also part of your subtitle is Coral Reefs and Atom Bombs. You wrote your book on the Atlantic, which was so interesting, and, and in the Pacific you wrote that there's twice as many species of coral. So there are biological differences between the Pacific and the Atlantic? Yes, in all sorts of ways. The Atlantic is a much cooler ocean, even in the Caribbean. The Pacific is a very warm ocean indeed, and so the corals are much more varied. I think there are 850 or so varieties. And, of course, the biggest coral reef in the world, in fact, the biggest living entity in the world, is the Great Barrier Reef off the east coast of Australia, which stretches for getting on for 1,400 miles. But in terms of the environment, it really is the canary in the coal mine, because as the ocean warms up and becomes ever more acidic, So the corals are bleaching and dying, which is a phenomenon that began to be noticed in the 1980s. So uh, the fear is that the Great Barrier Reef, which has national heritage status from the United Nations, may disappear, and really rather quickly, within 40 or 50 years. And as goes the Barrier Reef, so regrettably goes most of the coral in most of the rest of the world. So it is a a bellwether, something that reminds us that the Pacific, like all the oceans, is in deep, deep trouble. Simon Winchester's latest book is a personally researched collection of yarns and characters that illuminate the vastness of the Pacific Ocean and the nations that surround it. His book, Pacific, was a finalist for the 2015 Kirkus Prize for nonfiction for what they called his superb analysis of a world wonder that we seem hell-bent on damaging. Simon's website is simonwinchester.com. And Simon, you're talking about the Great Barrier Reef, and in your book you called it the marine equivalent of a rainforest. It is quite dramatic if the existence, the very existence of that 1,400-mile-long largest living thing on the planet is is, is literally at risk of, of going away. It is, and not only because of the rising temperature of the sea and the acidification, the increasing acidification of the sea, but also the mismanagement, I have to say, by the Australians. The trouble is that there's an enormous amount of runoff from the farms in uh, Queensland, particularly uh, just north of Brisbane. So a lot of chemicals and fertilizers are cascading out into the sea and affecting the reef, which is often only 20 or 30 miles away and sometimes less. And then the coal mining. I mean, an enormous amount of coal is mined in central Australia and is shipped by train to ports in eastern Australia and from there to China, which is the biggest market in the world for Australian coal. And unfortunately, the coal ships, often manned by Chinese navigators who seem rather careless, uh, clip the corners of the reef when they come out of the great coal ports and uh, damage it physically. So there's coal dust and tailings spilling onto the reef. There are ships that are clipping it as they sail by it. And there is the environmental damage. So one way or another, conspiracy between the planet as a whole and the Australian government in particular, the Great Barrier Reef is in dire straits. When you researched your book, Pacific, you must have traveled a lot. How did that make you more aware of climate change? Well, that's an interesting question. I I was based in Hawaii for a number of months when I was researching this and going off to various places, mostly islands, because I had covered most of the mainland when I had lived in Hong Kong for 13 years. And I had a very generous set of editors there who would send me to places, you know, as far apart as Kamchatka and Melbourne and southern Chile. So I sort of knew the coastline pretty well. So most of my experience from my base in Hawaii was Pacific Islands. 
And one of them, I mean, the whole tragedy of the atom bomb testing in the Marshall Islands resulted in one unintended consequence, which relates to environmental change. And that's what happened to the people that were expelled from Bikini Atoll. Bikini is where much of the testing went on in the 1950s. Everyone had to be evacuated. They tried to come home in the 1970s, but the island was still so red hot with radioactivity that they were Mm. turfed off again. And they went to an island in the southern Marshall Islands called Kili. And they hated it there. It was a nasty little island with none of what they had grown used to in Bikini. And now the irony is that the foreign minister of the Marshall Islands is in London at the moment, pleading on behalf of the islanders on Kili that you've got to take us in in England, and I dare say he'll come to America and ask for the same favor, because we are being constantly washed with floods now because the rising sea levels are devastating our little very low-lying island. So what poor people, having been turfed out of one island, their island Mm. radiated, and now global warming is doing for them in the new island they're living in. So that, I thought, was a most dramatic example of climate change. And you write about the Kiribati Islands, which is really the world's first climate refugees. Yes, it's actually pronounced Kiribati. It's one of these peculiar words. Ah, but so Kiribati. The, Kiri, the Kiribati people, the only um, island which extends over all four hemispheres. It's over the Dateline and over in the northern and southern hemispheres. So it can be winter and summer, today and yesterday, all at the same time in Kiribati. But a very, very low-lying set of islands, and they will undeniably, if sea level keeps on rising at the rate it is, be turfed out pretty soon. And mercifully, the Fijians, who live on a large and high-standing set of islands, have said, we'll set aside 6,000 acres of, um, I think, Vina Levu, I think I can't remember which island it is, Hmm. for you people to come and live in when uh, Kiribati is flooded. So the islanders are looking after one another in this really bizarre and perilous situation. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Simon Winchester. His book is Pacific. Simon, after all the research and hard work you've done in this book, it's just a a vast topic. Is there one moral or one takeaway? What would you like people who read this book to better appreciate? Well, there's a voyage going on as we speak. A Hawaiian sailing canoe set out from Honolulu with an attempt to go round the world without any navigational instruments, no compass, no sextant, and certainly no GPS. Well, it's making it, and it's doing very well. It got to Tahiti after about six weeks of sailing, and that's 2,500 miles of travel. Then it went, turned right and went to Samoa and Tokelau and the Cook Islands. It spent Christmas in New Zealand. Then it went to Australia into the Indian Ocean, away from the relative comfort zone of the Pacific, And you can track it every day, this doughty little craft called the Hokulea. If you go to the Polynesian Voyaging Society website, you can see where it is on any day. And its intention is to go into the Atlantic Ocean, sail up the Potomac, go and see Mr. Obama, the Hawaiian president, of course, and then head down the east coast of South America, round through the Straits of Magellan, as Magellan did in 1529, and come out into the Pacific and come home. And it'll take them four years to do it. And if they do it, then I think we will, in the West, do something which we have never really done before. We'll come to respect the people of the Pacific, because for so long we've colonized them, we've disdained them, we've disrespected them. But now in the voyage of the Hokulea, if it succeeds, and I think it will, 
we'll say, my gosh, these people know something that we never knew, how to travel around the world without any instruments at all, just feeling the sea, looking at the stars, the patterns of seabirds and clouds and so forth. And I think to give the Pacific and its people respect would be something that we all need to do, and I hope it'll begin very soon. Simon, thanks so much for your work, and thanks for sharing it with us. Thank you so much. When Martin Fletcher retired from a long career as a foreign correspondent for NBC, he turned his knowledge of how wars and conflict zones upend people's lives into a series of riveting novels. We talk with him about what it means to be a survivor next on Travel with Rick Steves. Amir Talibetsvilovich. I'm uh, coming from Sarajevo, capital of Bosnia, where I work as a local guide and as a journalist. We have many proverbs, like the rest of the Balkans, and for this time, I will use uh, one um, journalist, one. We will say, like, Sloboda govora je zajamčena, ali ne i sloboda poslije govora. Uh, there is a guarantee for the freedom of speech, but uh, not the freedom after the speech. Sloboda govora je zajamčena, ali ne i sloboda nakon govora. After a major tragedy, how do you get on with your life if you're the only one of your family to survive? Martin Fletcher knows there are extraordinary stories to explore in the lives of survivors. His father and mother were the only members of their families to survive the Holocaust of World War II. The now-retired foreign correspondent for NBC Television is now writing novels, novels that are informed by some of the 20th century history he's reported on. Martin's latest book is The War Reporter. It depicts a journalist's struggles during the Balkan Wars of the 1990s when Bosnian Ratko Mladic brought about Europe's worst genocide since Hitler. Martin's earliest novels are The List and Jacob's Oath. They're based on the lives of Holocaust survivors. Martin Fletcher joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to talk about being a survivor. Martin, welcome. Hi, Rick. Thanks for having me. For 30 years, you're a war correspondent. Now you're getting more into writing novels. Uh, before we get into your novel writing, give us a quick recap of the 30 years you spent as a war correspondent. Where did you work, and, and what was closest to your heart? Well, I, I was based most of that time, about 28 years, in Israel, covering the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So that was the closest to my heart. But um, I covered wars and conflicts all around the world for most of that time. And I've got to say, you know, everywhere you go, the same, I was always struck by the same thing. The people, their misery, and in particular, one question. What do you do the day after a terrible tragedy hits you? And that was always the question I asked wherever I was, and that interested me most. Hmm. Boy, for me to have a person on the ground reporting with a heart for the people, it, it's a huge service. And it must have been a gratifying 30 years. And, and now you're taking that rich experience and, and sharing it through novels. How did your Jewish heritage and your family's Holocaust experience, I understand most of your extended family was killed in the Holocaust, your wife is Israeli, how did all of this um, shape your reporting when it comes to dealing with hard-fought places outside of the Holy Land? Well, you know, it's a good question, and it's one that I never asked myself, to be honest. I, you know, when you're working as a network correspondent, rushing from story to story for 30, you know, more than 30 years, you don't get much time to stop and think. So... 
only when I wrote my first book, Breaking News, when I, I went to see a psychologist for the first time in my life to ask him, why, do you, why was I doing this? Why did I accept all this risk and all, and all this trauma in my life? You know, Why did I need it? And um, what we came up with was, I, was rather interesting, I found anyway, which was that my family's story in the Holocaust was that basically everybody was killed apart from my mother and father. And my mother's one sister survived, and my father's sister survived, and the niece. And everybody mm. else was murdered, all the grandparents, all the neat cousins, everybody, my aunts and uncles. So none of them had a voice. None of them had any way of talking, of, of you know, appealing. And so the question was, was I doing that for other people, you know, visit, going around the world, giving voice to people so that they could talk when my own family didn't have a voice? You know, I think that sounds a rather noble mm. motive, if it's true. Mm. I have no idea if it's true. But um, it certainly must have been a factor. It's interesting to look back on your career when you've done something with passion and look back and try to psychoanalyze what drove you. You know, you grew up, I understand, with, with candles in your house and nobody really explained them to you. Yeah, well, you know, with Jews, you know, when you have a, what they call a Yahrzeit list in German, a memorial candle which you light on the anniversary of the death of somebody. And in my family, my father had a phenomenal memory. And we were, every week, my brother and I would be taken by hand to the next room and we, my father would light a memorial candle for, you know, Aunt Teresa who died in Maidenek and my grandmother, her grandmother was killed in Auschwitz, you know, all these things. But what I realized only after, when I was writing the book, I realized my father took my brother and me by hand to light the candles. My mother never came even one time. Hmm. And only I, I didn't even realize that. It was just too painful for her to, hmm. to be there. And so that pain was passed on, obviously. Now, that's a, a powerful influence on you as a Jew and as somebody with a family history of the Holocaust. Have you thought much about the impact of the lessons of the Holocaust when the last people who actually have living memory of it pass away? That's happening pretty soon, and when it gets buried into the past. Um, is that going to make a difference in Israel and with Jewish Americans and so on? I think it will make a huge difference. You know, the... Um this question of, of, of memory. I mean, even in Israel, the Holocaust is taught as a history lesson to the children. I mean, the children who grew up in Israel today mm. really don't have any relationship right. with the Holocaust apart from the occasional memorial. And then you've got half the Jews of Israel who came from Arab countries who, when, when the Western Jews, we're commemorating the Holocaust, they say, well, what about us? You know, do you think we didn't suffer in, in Iraq and Syria and Libya mm. and all those places where the Jews did suffer tremendously too? So even even with them, there's a, there's this different way of looking at suffering. So yeah, the, yeah, sure. As the people die out, I think it's our duty and our honor to keep their memory to alive. Remember, I think the wish of the victims was uh, to remember and uh, not let it happen again. And I think the Jewish people are pretty good at remembering. I I was talking to Jews in in Jerusalem recently and asked why everybody wears black when they're worshiping, and they said it's mourning the loss of the temple uh, 1,900 years ago. Yeah, I've got long memories. <laughs> long, long memory. Maybe that's a, that's an interesting part yeah, of the whole right. whole dynamic there. Now, your yeah. new novel is The War Reporter, and it is interesting that it's set in Sarajevo, and is it just coincidental that it's dealing with the biggest killer in Europe since Hitler, Slobodan Milosevic? Uh, is it part of you wanting to raise awareness of, of these kind of horrors because of what you've experienced, and it just seemed with your, your professional experience, you could talk about Sarajevo and, and this on a smaller scale, modern Hitler. Yeah, well, I wanted to, I think that was part of it. I mean, that was what, probably that phrase that I came up with, the biggest killer since Hitler, is, that is absolutely true. By the way, it referred to Ratko Mladic. He was the head of the Bosnian Serb army ah. who carried out the massacre in Srebrenica. Milosevic was the political leader, but it was Ratko Mladic who today 
is on trial in The Hague for crimes against humanity and genocide. He was the biggest killer in, in Europe since Hitler. Hmm. And um, that really sort of rang a bell with me, you know. It, just, it was a phrase that kept recurring in my mind. He was, when I wrote the book, still on the run. He hadn't been caught for 16 years, even though he was top of the most wanted list in Europe the whole time. And my question was, why hadn't he been caught? And the answer was because nobody really wanted to catch him. So he was not, in the end, I mean, people knew where he was. Nobody just had, was able to take the initiative to bring him to justice. Was he actually hiding out? I go into that in the book. In the beginning, he was hiding in the open. You know, he went to football games and restaurants and holidays in Montenegro and his weddings. So he was hiding in plain sight. And then in the end, he had to go to ground because then the, 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 the hunt became more serious. But he was always being tipped off by secret services, militia men, former... Mm-hmm. Uh, all kinds of people who were defend- who were protecting him. And it has to be said that the NATO troops were not that serious for the first 10 years about mm-hmm. finding him. Yeah. Well, having come out of a Holocaust heritage, I can imagine you would want to kind of raise your voice and say, hello, what's going on here? Yeah, that's, I think that's what I wanted to do. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Martin Fletcher. For 30 years, we've known Martin Fletcher as a, a very accomplished foreign correspondent for NBC. Now he's writing novels that share his experience, uh, that you draw from your experience. Uh, Martin's latest book is The War Reporter. Martin, you also wrote two books that are directly related to the Holocaust, The List and Jacob's Oath. Can you tell us just a bit about those books, please? Yeah, well, I always wanted to write about in my, I think I mentioned earlier, that the question that always struck me in my work as a journalist was always when I met people who just lost their their family in a flood or in 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 a bomb, what do you do the next day? How do you get on with the rest of your life? And so that question, I directed at the Jews in London in 1945, you know, the end of the World War II. They're just finding out what happened to all their family members in the Holocaust. They were refugees who had escaped in 1939 and in 1945 now had to pick up the pieces when they found out everybody in their family was dead. You know, what do you do? So that was what the list was about. And then... That was such a fascinating question for me, and I enjoyed writing the book, and it was such a journey of personal discovery in writing the book, that I thought, oh, I wonder what happened to the Jews who stayed in Germany. So the first book was about the Jews in England in 1945, right after the war ends, and the second book was about what happened to the Jews in Germany right after the war ends. Hmm. Two different subjects, but obviously clearly very related. So important that we at least empathize with what it's like to come out of that kind of experience, especially in this age when the last people who remember the Holocaust are passing away. Martin Fletcher, as a a Jewish correspondent, a Jew and a a wife who's Israeli, how do you deal with reporting on Palestinian issues fairly? Well, you know, for me it wasn't difficult because I'm I'm the kind of person who always believes the last person I speak to. (laughs) So (laughs) I I I found myself relating very personally to anybody I speak to, Jews or Palestinians. I think my feeling about that conflict is that both sides are in the right. And in the same way, both sides are in the wrong. So although I'm a Jew, yeah, my family's, my wife's Israeli, and my kids are all born in Israel, for instance. I mean, I'm very mm-hmm. obviously very closely linked to the Israeli side of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, because of my background as a Jew in England and the Holocaust, I have a personal, very deep, visceral hostility towards bullies. And I support people who are being bullied in the playground anywhere. And so that, I don't want to call the Israelis bullies, but, you know, if you're a Palestinian, that's certainly the way you'd see it. Mm-hmm. So I found myself, you know, really sympathizing with the plight of the Palestinians, even though, uh, my, you know, I come from a, a Jewish background. And the one example of how difficult that was as a reporter was that in the morning during the suicide bombing campaigns, I would kiss my kids goodbye in the morning as they went off to school by bus, 
and later on they go to a restaurant or maybe a discotheque at night. That I would do in the morning, and in the afternoon I go to the West Bank and do stories for NBC News on the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade, mm. who are the people who make the bombs and try and kill the Israelis. Mm. So, you know, it was, it was really weird going from one side of the Green Line to the other in a day and having to sympathize and, emp- and understand both sides. But I guess I did, because my assignment was for three years, and I stayed for 30. <laughs> well, that, well that, that, that right there speaks volumes. I, <laughs> I, I recently produced a one-hour show for public television on the Holy Land, and, and I learned the complexity of the, the whole media landscape and also the tenderness of dealing with that here in the United States. What's your take as a correspondent and somebody who's committed to bringing home the truth on barriers between the truth and the American citizenry when it comes to Holy Land issues, Israelis and Palestinians? Well, I think that the difference is in the world of the internet and social media, whereas in the past, people like me were sort of gatekeepers, you know, and and information was filtered through us and we did our best to present it in as fairly objective as possible. Today, everybody's bombarded by propaganda, disinformation, misinformation, lies from both sides, from all sides. So it's very difficult, I think, for the ordinary person to really to sift what is real and what isn't real. And so now, today, it becomes a, which story triumphs is more important than which story is, is, is real. And I think that's the, weak, that's the problem we all face as consumers of information yeah. in our Internet world. You know, we don't know what's real anymore. And in that regard, if you're not, I'm not talking about social media and all the crazy blogging and stuff that goes on, but mainstream media that the lion's share of the populace uh, has wiring their perspective. Wouldn't you say within our country, the Israeli narrative is more carefully promoted and protected than the Palestinian narrative? Well, you know, because I don't live in America, and I'm not American. I can't really say, mm-hmm. but I can. But I, from my perspective, I know that the Israeli story in America is much more is received with much more understanding than in Europe. Mm-hmm. In Europe, there's great hostility towards Israel, great hostility among, certainly among the people you hear from, mm-hmm. and, you know, the great, the, the silent majority, who knows? But, and it's affecting policy, it's affecting government policy and economic policy. In America, I think Jews, Israel gets a, a fairer hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the bottom line, though, you know, it really is it, quite simply that the two sides need to sit down and work it out, and they don't do that, and I think they don't do it because they're not ready. And neither side really wants it yet. Mm-hmm. So to you know to say this side is more is is right or this side is wrong, it kind of misses the point. I think because it's non-productive. Right. It's non-productive. It's not, it yeah. doesn't matter. It, it no longer matters. You know this. It's so clear that each side has a great story to tell. Uh, the, what they've got to do is sit down and work it out. And, they don't and do each side has a lot of baggage. And uh, I think this wall, an unintended consequence of the wall, is the younger generation can't talk to each other. Well, I'm not sure they ever did actually. Hmm. You know, the, t- yeah. the, the point when Jews and Arabs really, really related to each other was actually probably before the founding of the State of Israel, right. when there was a lot more cooperation between farmers and parts of Israel across the border with Lebanon and Jordan. Right. You know, I know plenty of older folks who say, oh, yeah, we used to go to Lebanon, we used to go to Jordan, have a cup of coffee with our neighbors, come back again. You know, it was much more fluid then. So it's not really the wall. It's just the ongoing mm-hmm. conflict. During a 40-year career as a foreign correspondent, often in dangerous war zones, Martin Fletcher won nearly every major award in journalism. When Martin retired as NBC's bureau chief in Tel Aviv in 2010, he turned to writing novels. His first two works about Holocaust survivors and World War II refugees are The List and Jacob's Oath. They drew upon his own family's experiences. We last spoke with Martin on Travel with Rick Steves about his nonfiction book, Walking Israel. Martin's latest novel is inspired by his reporting during the Yugoslav Wars of the 1990s. 
It's called The War Reporter. His website is martinfletcher.net. And Martin, you've traveled to all the corners where there's famine and apartheid and terrorism and, and genocide, and your own family was devastated by the Holocaust. Yet a lot of people are completely untouched by all of these things. As somebody who's been immersed in this for so long, do you feel like the, the typical human being is just clueless and heartless to these kind of issues? I, I, <laughs> I would come down on the side of cluelessness. I mean, if you're clueless about something, in theory, you should be a happier person. But I personally believe that it's our duty to know what's happening to other people around the world. And that my career has been basically telling one group of people what is happening to another group of people. And in America, you are so blessed by having a you know, relatively peaceful environment in which you live day by day. And it, you, know, you need to treasure it. It's so rare in most of the world. You know, we just don't understand how lucky we are. And I think that's the lesson that I learned in my travels. You know, the parts of Europe, the United States of America, you know, other Canada, you know, New Zealand, mm-hmm. the, the places where we live in, in tranquility and security are a, a very small part of the world's surface. And we need to treasure that. The downside of that is we may, because of that, have less empathy for people who are dealing with reality. Well, yeah, but I personally don't condemn people who don't uh, you know, have that. I mean, I think we should all give money when asked to help good causes. But basically, we should just, our responsibility is to live our own life as well as possible mm-hmm. and help other people when you get a chance. Mm-hmm. But to always be sort of unhappy about what's happening in Rwanda <laughs> you know, the other side of the world. It's difficult, and I, I understand that. And that's why I spent my career, you know, trying to tell those stories, because I, I do think it's important, but I don't, I don't condemn people who don't care. And I, I, I believe it's my job to make them care. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Martin Fletcher. His uh, new novel is The War Reporter. And, uh, Martin, you're basically retired from uh, war reporting now. If, if you were a young reporter today, let's just close with a, a thought. Where... What would be the most challenging and appealing to you to have as a beat, as a war correspondent? Where would you like to go right now and, and just dive into it? Mexico. Hmm. I wouldn't say it's a war correspondent because there's no war as such, or there is on some levels. But I find, I find that Mexico, by the way, I'm spending about half the year these days in Mexico because I'm trying to study the, the question. Mm-hmm. To have such a huge place on your doorstep, 130 million people, such a wealthy country, and know so little about it for the most part. You know, all we know here is drugs and immigration. Mm-hmm. And we don't see what sort of amazing wealth of opportunity and talent there is there. And so I'm, I'm actually spending a lot of time there trying to understand the place. It's got horrific problems too, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, that's, what, that's what I'm doing, actually. It's not really what I, want, what I want to do. That's what I am doing. I'm trying to find out as much as I can about Mexico without oh. getting sucked into the drug violence. <laughs> yeah, beyond the drug violence. And I, I, I would imagine yeah, uh, yeah. we might see a, another book from Martin Fletcher on that topic. Martin Fletcher, thank you so much for joining us and uh, best wishes with your writing. Thank you very much, Rick. I appreciate it. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. We get website support from Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Thanks for studio help to NPR in Washington, Darren Peck at Sports Byline USA in San Francisco, and to Nick Winter in KPLU Tacoma. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. 
Rosetta Stone believes that knowing even just a little bit of a new language can help take down barriers so your trip can be truly memorable. Helping people learn language for more than 20 years, it's now available on smartphones and tablets. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Each year, Rick Steves Tour Guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. Choose from three dozen exciting itineraries covering the best of Europe from Ireland to Istanbul, Paris to St. Petersburg, and practically everywhere in between. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.